Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we wanted to show that video to you because as many of you know, our theme for this year is make, mature, and multiply. Uh, so as we think about discipleship in the church and uh, the mission of the church to make disciples, to baptize and then teach people all that Christ has commanded, uh, we've considered what does it look like to have a commitment to these three specific areas, to make disciples, uh, for us ourselves to mature as disciples, uh, and then to multiply more people who are equipped to be disciple makers. And so we think about whenever, that whenever it comes to our parents who are discipling their children. Uh, we think about that whenever we consider getting connected to a missional community group. A couple things that are new this year that perhaps you've seen is a scripture memory card on your seat every single week because we want you to be meditating on, reflecting on the scripture throughout the week. We're doing our Bible reading plan again. We have equip classes. We're doing things like Sunday night equip. Um, one of the things that we're rolling out at the end of this month is the Next Steps mentorship program where you can have a one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationship within the church and go through a six-week devotional that was written by fellow church members. And so as we think about taking the commitment seriously uh, to make disciples, to mature as disciples, and to multiply more disciple makers, uh, we see that carrying out through every aspect of the church, every life stage of our church, and every relationship that we have as a church body. And so I wanted to celebrate that with you um, and, and really just hold up a, a, another godly example of what it looks like to make disciples in the home as well as in the church. Um, I, I wanted, before I, before I began my sermon this morning, to, um, to, to celebrate and also uh, to, to mourn with, with you all. Uh, many of you know that last Saturday, Ian Romaine passed away. Um, if, if you don't know Ian, uh, let me remind you of just his story. Uh, it was around April of last year that Ian and his family discovered that he had brain cancer. Uh, they were missionaries in Spain, and uh, the, the prognosis was, was not good, and so they moved to Cincinnati so that he could begin treatment, and he was with us for several months. Uh, he had confessed faith in Christ about a year before they moved to Cincinnati, but he had not been baptized. And so uh, they landed at our church. They quickly became a part of our church family. Um, you guys loved on them well. Uh, they had been out of the country for roughly eight years, and they came here, and they felt right at home at the Oaks Church. Um, and, you know, as, as his health diminished, uh, you know, he passed this past Saturday, um, and we got to, Abby and I, we were in Winston-Salem and uh, got to be a part of, of the visitation and the funeral service with them this weekend. Um, and and I, I want you to know that you modeled what it looks like to bear one another's burdens in, in a dark period of life that none of us would want to experience. That you not only uh, are a church that is able, that has the capacity, the God-given ability to rejoice with those who rejoice, but a church that can weep with those who weep. And they've received cards from you. They've received financial support from you. They've uh, been benefited by your prayers. And yesterday, as 
Jonathan considers the, the death of his little boy and also the eternal life that he has in Christ as he was considering the blessings that he would praise God for among the eight years of life that his child had. <laughs> he named you. He mentioned you. And what a great privilege, what a great honor it is to be the body of Christ here in Cincinnati, um, to think that perhaps the Lord in his kind providence would have planted this church six years ago and put us right here in this rec center 15 minutes from Cincinnati Children's so that we could take care of a missionary family uh, during a very difficult season of their life. And so um, I, wanna, I wanna commend you. I also wanna challenge you to continue to pray for them. Uh, I think perhaps some of the, the most difficult moments are, are ahead. Uh, you know, we, we drove back last night, and uh, this morning our lives were fairly normal, and yet they wake up to just this tangible absence of their son each day uh, and, and mourn his loss and, and try to redirect their, their, um, their focus on the Lord and, and to trust him for, for peace and uh, for just being sustained. And so continue to pray for them, lift them up. Um, we'll put their address in the, the weekly this week. If you want to, you know, send them cards or uh, just, just a note of encouragement or something like that. Um, but, but I wanted to commend you guys for uh, just being the church, being the body of Christ. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful to be your pastor. All right. Uh, let's go to the book of Mark. If you have your Bible, find Mark 15. We're going to be in verses 1 through 15 in the book of Mark. Now, as we get into Mark 15, uh, I actually want to reference Daniel 2 before we look at these 15 verses. I think to really understand the gravity of what is taking place in Mark 15, we need to kind of rewind 600 years and consider this strange dream that this pagan king Nebuchadnezzar had whenever the people of God were taken out of Israel, out of the promised land, and they were in captivity in Babylon. And then one night, the, this king, this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, he wakes up in a cold sweat. He's got this crazy dream. And, and this dream is so troublesome that he wonders, what does this mean? And there are wise men that are all in his city, these guys that are magicians, enchanters, you know, forth tellers and, uh, you know, future tellers. And, he, and he's like, hey, tell me, tell me the dream that I had. I'm not simply going to ask you to interpret this dream. I want you to tell me what I dreamed and then interpret the dream. Well, none of them can do it. And so Nebuchadnezzar, this power-hungry leader, is like, well, I'll just kill them all. Well, then you have Daniel, this young guy who had been taken into captivity, and he says, wait, God has given me the ability to interpret dreams and, and to be able to see dreams. And so would you grant me your ear that I might tell you the dream and then give its interpretation? And Nebuchadnezzar says, sure. So Daniel says, this is what you dreamed, King Nebuchadnezzar. You dreamed that there was this golden statue. And the golden statue kind of had four different sections to it. Uh, the head was made of gold. It was, it was this golden head, and then the, the chest and the arms were made of silver, and then it had thighs and legs of bronze. And then whenever it got to the feet, the, the lower portion of the legs, we see that, that the vision was kind of this iron mixed with clay, all, all put together. And, and Daniel says, that's, that's the dream, right? And Nebuchadnezzar says, yeah. And then Daniel said, but there was another part of the dream. 
that there was, whenever the statue was there, there was this boulder in the distance and it's growing closer with great velocity and that, and that boulder hits the statue. And then the statue just shatters into a million people. And as that boulder is laying on the ground, it begins to expand. In fact, that boulder then grows into a solid rock formation that then becomes a mountain. And that mountain consumes the entire world. Nebuchadnezzar says, that's exactly what I dreamed. And then Daniel says, do you want to know the interpretation? He says, yeah. He says, the statue represents four kingdoms. Uh, the, the head of gold represents the kingdom of Babylon, uh, the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar was in control of during the time. It seemed like an unstoppable force. But then he said the, the chest of silver, that represents the Medo-Persian Empire. King Nebuchadnezzar, you're not going to rule forever. There's going to be another king that, kingdom that's going to come. And then the thighs of bronze, they represent Alexander the Great. He's going to come, he's going to establish this great power of Greece. And then the, the clay and the iron that is mixed together, that is going to be the Roman Empire. It's, it's mixed. It's powerful in some ways and yet weak through power struggles. And then there's, there's this boulder that's going to come in. It's going to come on the scene. And whenever it, whenever it comes, it will shatter the greatest empires of this world. And it will take over the entirety of the world. And what we find in Mark 15 is that that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, that Daniel interpreted, has become a reality. Because what do we, what do we find? We find the Roman kingdom represented by Pontius Pilate, and then we see Christ, who is the king, a stumbling stone to some, and yet the foundation upon which, which we can build our lives for others. We see here both the, the crumbling kingdom that is grasping for power and also the crowned king who has an everlasting kingdom. And yet we will behold this paradox that Christ in his glory, in his exaltation as king of kings, lord of lords, will experience humiliation before an incompetent governor lay his life down so that he could be crucified so that he could bring salvation to the world, that he could bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So as you consider Mark 15, you could summarize it in this way, that Jesus is the powerful king who takes the penalty of our sin, that Jesus is the powerful king who takes the penalty of for our sin. Now, whenever we get to chapter 15, uh, we, we notice that the focus is back on Jesus in our story. Whenever we looked at chapter 14 last week, the very end of it is focusing on Peter. It's focusing on his denial. Uh, there is this trial that Peter is facing in the courtyard below, and, and he crumbles, he fails, while Jesus is being put on trial in the courtroom above, and we see that he remains fast to fulfill the will of the Father. Now, we, we noted last week that as Peter spoke his final denial of Christ, he looks across the courtyard and he locks eyes with Jesus. Whenever we come to chapter 15, I want you to imagine what Jesus has gone through. This has been a sleepless night for Jesus. 
since he celebrated Passover with his disciples, all the way until we see that it is early Friday morning as the sun has risen. He has been beaten. He's been falsely accused. He's been mocked and spat on. His eyes are swollen. He is exhausted at this moment. He has not only experienced the betrayal of one of his nearest friends, but he's also experienced all of his disciples running and leaving him abandoned into the garden. And as if that wasn't enough suffering for one man, he saw the man he trusts most say, I have no idea who that is. Your Christ is walking, his passion and the shadow of the cross is looming larger still. And we will see the immense strength of Christ in restraining his omnipotence to become weak so that we would be saved. With that in the background, let's read Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. The word of God says, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. In this passage, I want to show you two paradoxes of Christ's passion. Whenever we think about the word passion, we often think of someone that's really enthusiastic about a hobby. Maybe they really love a a sports team or they're very passionate about something. But whenever we think about Christ's passion, uh, we're using it in the sense that the the word pati is or pati is derived from the Latin word for suffering or to endure. And so whenever we think about the passion of Christ, We were reflecting on that moment from the Garden of Gethsemane until he would experience an excruciating death on the cross and utter the words, it is finished. And in this passion of Christ, there is irony. There are these paradoxes in which you would look at this and just think, this isn't right. And yet it was the path in which Christ must walk so that we would be saved and so that he would ultimately be exalted as the eternal king. And so the first paradox that we find in this passage is that the omnipotent king subjects himself to accomplish salvation. The omnipotent king with limitless power, he subjects himself to accomplish salvation. 
Now, as chapter 15 begins, we realize that the sun is rising on this Passover morning. As soon as it was morning, we read, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. Now, according to Jewish law, it would be illegal to have a trial by night and to make a decision. And and so, for the charges that they have made against Jesus to have any sense of legitimacy, they needed to do something in the daylight. And so, they say, okay, let's get everybody together. Let's just kind of, you know, have this council. We'll hold this council. We already have everything in play exactly where we want it. Our plan is unfolding as we wish, but we need to get this council together hold a consultation. They also realize in this moment uh, that while they have said that Jesus is to die, they are powerless to make it happen. As much as they would hate to admit it, they relied on the power of Rome because it was Rome that had the power to wield the sword. And so while they said, yes, Jesus must die, they say, "If, if we're truly going to make this happen, if he is going to be crucified, uh, we're going to have to kind of, you know, uh, come under the, the rule of these Romans that we hate so that we can make this happen. So, so what do they do? They find Jesus and lead him away. Now, I think it's interesting here that we see that Jesus is bound by, by human ropes, and yet we know what Jesus was truly bound by. He was bound by the will of the Father. As Hebrews 12 said, that he would endure the cross for the joy that was set before him, ultimately the salvation that he would bring to anyone who would trust in his name. And so Jesus here goes willingly into the presence of Pilate. He is delivered over. Uh, People refer to this as a divine passive, right? So while you see the lawless deeds of men at work, while these sinful actions are taking place, we know that God is ordaining every action. That as Joseph would say, what the enemy means for evil, God means for good. And he will be glorified through this humiliation of Christ that in his resurrection, he will be exalted and put on display as the savior of the world. So we find that he's led Delivered over to Pilate, verse 2, Pilate enters the picture. Now, what we know about Pilate is that he is not just a, a figure that we find in the Bible, but there's also a lot of historical evidence as to who Pilate is. Now, Pilate was the governor in Judea from 26 AD to 36 AD, roughly 11 years he was in this position. Now, Pilate wouldn't typically be in, in the city of Jerusalem. His home was near the sea. And yet, during this time when the Passover was celebrated, Pilate wanted to come in and keep a watch on the city of Jerusalem because people are coming in to celebrate the Passover. They're coming to celebrate this feast in which all the Israelites are reflecting on when they were under the oppression of the Egyptians and how God set them free. And so if you're a Roman ruler, if there is ever a time in which you're thinking that nationalism and, you know, kind of the ability for riots to take place and a a revolt to start, if you're thinking if there's ever a time that that could happen, these are prime conditions for that to happen. And so Pilate makes his way over into Jerusalem. Every male above 12 years old who was an Israelite was required to come into the city, and so the population swells. Things are somewhat chaotic, and so Pilate comes in to make sure that he can kind of place his hand where it needs to be to rule with the power that he has been given. Now, I think sometimes whenever people uh, think about Pilate, uh, 
they have kind of a favorable view of him. Right? I mean, I mean, I think it's easy, maybe if you read some of the gospel accounts, that uh, you walk away with the idea that Pilate is this fairly decent guy who, who just got mixed up into uh, the, the you know, Jewish murderous plots of the religious leaders against Jesus. We kind of see him like washing his hands or saying Jesus is innocent. Or we're like, well, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe he's not that bad. And yet history for us paints a very different picture. I mean, the, the God that Pilate worshipped was power. He worshipped himself. It was all about his self-preservation. Who could he use to gain power? Uh, what obstacles could he avoid to maintain his status and position? Uh, several stories throughout history, like the one that Josephus tells, the Jewish historian, he, he said that, that there was this moment in which Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct. And so what he did is he, he had his soldiers go and, and ransack the temple treasury, steal what, what the Jews had given to the temple, and then use that money to build a synagogue. And then whenever they got upset, I mean, think about someone coming in, stealing all the money in our church, and then going out and, like, and, and declaring this is wrong at the courthouse, right? I mean, we would, we would do something like that. And, and whenever people began to protest that their treasury had been robbed and the money that they had been given for the Lord is now using for government purposes, whenever they began to protest, he sent his soldiers out among them and said, just start stabbing people to death until the crowd disperses. And what happened, man, as, as they're rioting left and right, people are, people are dying. People who are just making known the injustice that they had experienced. There's, there's another situation in which uh, Luke writes about it, Luke 13, 1, where uh, Pilate goes in and to, and to break up, you know, different crowds of people. He had his soldiers murder people, and uh, their, their own blood was mixing with the sacrifices that they were making to the Lord, an, an abomination in the eyes of the people of God. And, and so we see this, this man who is wicked, right, just, just willing to steamroll people, for the sake of his own gain. And at the same time, what we find is that he was a pragmatic ruler, a, a politician that, that kind of knew when to back down from a fight to serve his best interest. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, also tells a story about whenever he had just come into power. And, and he takes the, the military leaders and you know, they set up all of these shields uh, around Jerusalem. And, and begin, people begin to get upset that, that he has done this. And so what does he do? He recognizes he's a new ruler on the scene. If people are really going to do what he wants them to do, he needs to pull those shields out. And so he goes in, he has them all removed. So that people are like, okay, well, I guess he's not that bad. We, we, won't, we won't revolt at this moment. Philo tells another story, another historian. He says that he has uh, these, these little idols, shrines set up in, in the palace of Herod. And, and people begin to get upset about it. And what does he do? He, he pulls them down because he says, well, you know, I've, I've kind of done a lot of corrupt things. I've murdered people for, for no reason. You know, I've, I've gone in and I've stolen money from the temple treasury. If, if this gets out, if this level of corruption makes its way to Caesar, then perhaps I would lose my power. And so he then begins to back down. In Pilate, we find a man who is willing to flex his own pride and worldly power to get what he wants. And at the same time, we see a man that is willing to just back down from a fight for the sake of his own self-preservation. So how would this Roman governor treat the king of kings? 
How would he interact with Christ when he stands in front of him? Well, to him, Jesus was either an obstacle to be eliminated or Jesus was an object to be used for his own gain. And sadly, I think that Pilate can be a picture of us all. That sometimes whenever we consider who Christ is to us, sometimes he's an object to be used, right? So we, so we just think, well, I feel, I feel bad about my guilt, my shame. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm worried about the future. And so I'll, I'll run to Jesus just to, get, I, I don't want him to be Lord over my life. I don't want him to tell me what to do with my money or uh, the boundaries that I should have in dating or that I need to take the gospel and, and share it with others. I just, I, I need to use Jesus to get what he has to give. And I'd say, well, that Jesus is, is not just the one who gives life, but he's also the one that demands that we live for him. Other people might say that Jesus is an obstacle to be eliminated, right? Now, I, he's not going to tell me how to live. Why, why do I need someone to die for my sins? My sins aren't even that bad. I don't even know if I would call the things that you call sin, sin. And yet, what does this picture of Christ command? That he is not only the king of Jews, but that he is the king of all creation. That he is not an object to be used or an obstacle to be eliminated, but the king who is omnipotent and worthy of our worship. And so Pilate here, he's piqued by curiosity. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, this reveals the accusation that the Jews would have brought against Jesus whenever they presented him to Pilate. Because think about what the Jews had accused Jesus of. Blasphemy, he's equating himself with God. He is saying that he is the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies that were given by the prophets throughout the Old Testament. Do you think Pilate cares about that? No. He, he doesn't care about the accusation of blasphemy. That, is, that doesn't matter to him. What's going to get Pilate's attention? Uh, what is going to bring about a death warrant from the city of Rome? It's going to be a threat to Caesar. And so whenever they approach Pilate, they say, this man is guilty of sedition. He, he wants the power of the throne. He's coming to usurp. He's coming to create an insurrection. He is coming to revolt. He's, he's starting riots. He doesn't want people to pay their taxes. They're hurling all of these insults, these accusations about Jesus that they're hoping will bring down the sword from Pilate. And so they, they level this political charge against Jesus. And Pilate, he's, he's trying to gain more information. And he asks, are you the king of the Jews? He, he wants to know that if, if Jesus is the king of the Jews, and, and consider the answer that Jesus gives. He says, you have said so. And it's an interesting answer, isn't it? Just these four words. Why? Why did he answer that way? Why didn't he just say yes? It's a qualified yes. He's saying, he's saying you, have, you have said so. And in essence, he is saying, I'm a king and I have a kingdom. But you can't comprehend the king that I am. And you can't fathom the kind of kingdom that I rule over. You see, Jesus here, as he is being put on trial, if you will, questioned by Pilate, could rightly say, I am not just the king of the Jews. I am the king of the Jews and the Gentiles. And anyone who trusts in me will have life in my name. He could say, not only am I the king of the Jews, but I am the king of all creation. 
that I rule over every blade of grass and every human heart, that every soul of man is in my hands, that Jesus could say, I am the king. I am the king of kings and I am the Lord of lords. But he doesn't say that. He simply answers to Pilate, you have said so. Because even if he expressed the, the, the jurisdiction of his reign, even if he expressed the limitless power that belongs to him over all creation, Pilate wouldn't understand. Here we see that the, the chief priests, they begin to hurl many other insults. Verse 3, the chief priests accuse him of many things. Luke tells us that those were, you know, him creating riots in uh, the countryside or, you know, telling people to not pay their taxes, which we know that none of those were true. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. He was amazed that Jesus wouldn't defend himself, that, that Jesus, by Pilate's own admission, was an innocent man. And he says, oh, you're, you're not going to say anything? You're not going to counter their argument or their accusations? And what's taking place here? Isaiah 53, 7 is being fulfilled. That like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opens not his the omnipotent king restraining his power to bring salvation to those who don't deserve it. This is this beautiful paradox that unfolds in Mark 15, that the one who is all-powerful appears weak before a human ruler that many within his own ranks, ranks would call incompetent. I mean, many would say, Pilate, Pilate I mean, he, he's not even that great of a ruler. And yet here we see the omnipotent king acting weak, appearing weak before him, restraining his power to bring the power of salvation to all who would believe. Here Pilate is a man, he's grasping for power, he's intoxicated by the possession of it. And yet Jesus is the all-powerful king of the universe and he is willing to lay down his life for those who have sinned against him. I want you to consider Pilate for a moment. Because as I said before, I think Pilate is a picture of us all. That Pilate, when it comes down to it, was a man seeking power. And so many of us seek the same thing. We, we want power. We want influence. We want control. So many of us want to be sovereign. No, most of us, we don't, we don't want to be rulers in a power-hungry military regime. No, that's not what we're looking for. But perhaps our subtle pursuits of power are even more dangerous. You see, whenever we seek to gain power, we wrongly use the positions that God has given us, our areas of influence for our own gain. Uh, in essence, we are saying, Jesus, you don't belong on the throne, I do. Uh, essentially, we break the first commandment and, and we put another God before the one true God. And so often it is ourselves. Perhaps it's helpful here for me to give you a definition of power. Power is the longing for influence or recognition. Think about that as you think, you know, do, do I really struggle with, with power? This idol of power, the longing for power, it's the longing for influence or recognition. It's interesting, even, even secular sources, uh, like there's this article in the Wall Street Journal called The Power Trip. 
written by Jonathan Lehrer. And he, he talks about the way that, that power or influence, titles that, that people long for, how, how gaining these positions can begin to affect the way that, that you think. He, he tells the story, one of the psychologists in the article says that when you give people power, they basically start acting like fools. They flirt inappropriately. They tease others in a hostile fashion. They act on their own impulses. One of the questions that they asked people in, you know, uh, high-ranking positions, execs and CEOs, people of influence, they asked the question, they said, do you, do you often drive over the speed limit? Do you speed? They say, yeah, all the time. They say, well, well why, do you, why do you speed and have no problem doing that? They say, well, I'm an important person, and there are places that I have to be. And, I mean, I don't think that other people should speed, but I need to speed because I need to get where I'm going. And, and we think about that, and we think, well, well that's, that's kind of an arrogant way to think. And yet, how often do we take whatever small realm of influence or power or stewardship that we have, and we, and we begin to have this attitude of entitlement? Like, yeah, I deserve that. Or yeah, I should do this. Or no, things shouldn't be this way because this is what I've done to make sure that things don't happen like this. And we begin to long for power. We resent people who get in the way of our power. We long for power as a picture of Pilate. Let me ask you a couple questions that I think uh, were helpful for trying to diagnose this in my own heart this week. Do you get insecure when you see your peers experience success? When you look at people maybe in a similar position, similar life stage, they're experiencing success, do you get insecure? Do you feel like, oh no, like, well, I mean, I, I, I should do that, I should, I should be there. Do you secretly cherish the misfortune or difficulty of others in areas that you want to excel? Do you get angry or upset whenever people don't heed your advice? Do you get angry or upset whenever people question a decision that you make? an expense you made or something like that. You're like, hey, you should, you should stay out of my business. Are you quick to speak but slow to listen? Are your actions or choices driven by a desire to impress people? Do you hold a title of influence that has become synonymous with your identity? This is who I am. I'm a manager. I'm an elder. I'm, you know, I'm this person in this position. And that's become your identity. It's become who you are. Do you long for a title of influence. And you say, man, if I get there, then that will be where I want to be. Do people around you feel used or manipulated? Right? There's kind of a stepping stone to get what you want. Is your mood dependent upon winning? Is your mood dependent upon outperforming others around you? You see, whenever we are consumed by our pursuit of power, we then fail to rely on Christ. Pilate is simply a picture of us all. Whenever Jesus said, you have said so, Pilate's response should have been to drop on his knees before the king of kings in worship. You are the king of, of the Jews. You're the one who has come to bring salvation to man. You're the ruler over all mankind. He should have dropped to his knees in humble worship before the king. Instead, he... He says, okay, well, how, how must I deal with this Jesus for my gain? Either an obstacle to be eliminated or an object to be used. But look to Christ. Consider Christ for a moment. Consider the humility and restraint of our Lord. Reflect on his boundless power 
that he is omnipotent, that he is the agent of creation, that by his very words, the universe was formed. He can bring to pass whatever he pleases. There is no gap between his intentions and his ability to carry them out. He is omnipotent and all-powerful. Angels stand ready in heaven at his command to the sound of his voice. Just moments before, in the chief priest's house, whenever they had asked who Jesus is, he said, truly, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of glory. Whenever he is in the garden of Gethsemane, and, and they go to seize him. He said, truly, I could call down 12 legions of angels to bear me up and to protect me. And yet he restrains his hand that the scriptures would be fulfilled and that he could bring salvation to us. And we see that Christ is all powerful and yet sets aside his power to bring about salvation. He goes to the cross, he takes our penalty. He uses his power to serve and to save. And we see that after the cross, just three days after his humiliation, he would display his exaltation through the resurrection. He emerged on Easter morning as the conquering king. There is no need to look elsewhere for evidence of Christ's omnipotence. He defeats sin, Satan, and death. Not just the one who conquers kingdoms, the boulder that crushes this statue, but the one who crushes the penalty of death by taking his own. The empty tomb is evidence of Christ's immeasurable power and his glory. And consider for a moment how he chooses to use his power. If you were all powerful, how would you use it? I think about that, right? Like, like if I just had power, would I, would I be content to just make sure that I never hit a red light again? Would I use that power to just make sure that, that my kids never wake up with the sniffles? Would I be content for, for just kind of this self-centered use of power? And yet consider how our king chooses to wield his limitless power. He brings the spiritually dead to life. He uses his power for our salvation, for our sanctification, and for our preservation. He uses his limitless power for his people, our salvation, our sanctification, and our preservation. Perhaps some of you are in here this morning and you feel absolutely hopeless. Maybe you're, you're sitting here and you're like, you know what, I, I feel so hopeless that I've contemplated taking my own life. And I feel ashamed to admit it, but I just don't even see a way out. Maybe you're, you're here this morning and you feel like you've messed up so bad that that somehow the grace of God doesn't apply to you. Maybe you're here and you're just crippled by regret. I want you to know that the king who rose from the dead can give you abundant life and wash away your sins. Christian brother or sister, do you realize right now in the midst of your struggle that Christ exercises his kingly rule to bring about your sanctification? That Christ seated on his throne, is exercising his kingly rule to bring about your sanctification, your growth in the faith. He is changing you right now in a way perhaps that you can't even see. The Holy Spirit is working in you to bring about transformation. 
This means that your struggle with addiction or lust or anger or laziness or discontentment might feel like an uphill battle and you are exhausted. But Jesus is using his boundless power to transform you little by little. So receive his help and the faith that he supplies. Act on it. Take it up. Own it. Grow in it. Maybe some of you this morning, you're struggling with your assurance of salvation. You said, you know what, I feel apathetic. My faith feels cold and weak. It hasn't been the best of weeks for me. Would you understand that his power enables you to persevere to the end? That his strength, the strength of Christ, the one who is resurrected and seated on high, his strength promises that you will not be snatched from his nail-scarred hands, that he will keep you to the end. Our king exercises his unlimited power for the salvation, sanctification, and preservation of his people. And so the call for every Christian, thinking about this one who is all-powerful, how sometimes we selfishly seek our power, the call for every Christian is to behold the power of Christ and say, Lord, whatever you have entrusted to me and whatever you have called me to do, may I do to your glory. I think perhaps uh, a wrong implication to take from this would be to avoid places in which you will have power. Maybe to say, well, if, if, if there's the ability to worship influence, then Lord, don't give me any. And yet I would say that's not the response at all. The call for every Christian is not to avoid places that you will have power, but to in fact pray that God would use you wherever he's placed you. For some of you, that might mean that you are a mother and you have the voice in a child's ear to, to steward, to disciple them. Some of you are leaders, MC leaders, leaders in your workplace. You have a team in which you're the primary voice speaking into what takes place each and every week. Uh, some of you are, are people of influence in other places. And here's my word of advice. Don't love power. Love God and others with the power that he's given you. Don't love power, love God and others with the power that God has entrusted to you. Uh, something silly is perhaps you're the one who holds the remote in the home, starting small, right? And consider what other people might, might want to watch, as tangible, as silly as that is. Some of you are teachers, your doctors, your managers. You oversee clients. Use your position of authority to build up those who bear God's image. Don't belittle people. Don't make people feel bad or dumb or small. Build people up as they bear the image of God. Husbands, fathers, use your position as the head of the home to set a tone of grace and patience. Love your wife and your children in a way that establishes security. This love is unconditional. My father knows me, loves me. I can talk to him. Don't, don't abdicate the authority that God's given you in the home. Don't abuse the power that God has given you. Each person, to some extent, has been entrusted with, with power from the Lord, authority in some way. Use it for God's glory. If you have a voice, speak for those who don't have one. If you have a platform, pull others up. If you are strong, serve the weak. You see, we follow a king who stoops down to wash our feet. And you and I, we are promised a crown in heaven. But the second that we see him, we will remove that crown from our heads and throw it before the one who is worthy of being exalted. 
He's the omnipotent king who lays down his life for our salvation, for our sanctification, and for our preservation. Let me ask, is he king over your life? Do you, do you see what Christ endured that you might be saved? Do you see that Christ endured the cross so that he be recognized as king? That although his death was gruesome and excruciating, his resurrection brings life to all who believe. Let me ask, is he king over your life this morning? You see, there are those who will see Christ as the rock who comes bursting in and he will be a stumbling stone to others, to some, and that he will be the one in which we build the foundation of our life upon for others. He is the one who's the king over all creation. His kingdom is not of this world and yet he invites us into it. My desire this morning is that we would exalt this omnipotent king who took the penalty for our sin and that we would praise him, that in his death and in his resurrection that we would live our life for his glory. Let's pray.